Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, the story of a man whose blindness is healed by Jesus. We watch the incremental changes in the way the man seems to understand what has happened. We wonder about the different beliefs that may lie behind the statement that God's work could be revealed through this person in particular precisely because he is blind. And we think a lot about the things that garner our attention, that make us think we know, that actually blind us to whole layers of reality. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? I am doing all right. It is kind of a dreary day in Atlanta, but I am like, I feel like, um, you know, I don't know if you ever feel this way, Bobby. You can t- share your feelings with our with our <laughs> listeners. If you ever feel like you're like, like sort of like kind of actively looking for little like pops of like happiness or like there's a beautiful thing that like there's a child in a red coat that like yeah. pops out in the dreary weather yeah. or the... I don't know. I'm like throwing my gaze around like what can delight me today? Yeah. So what what have you discovered? It's been a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in this so okay, you know the Jewish calendar doesn't quite line up with the Gregorian calendar right, sure. like cuz we're lunar and uh, whatever. So at, in order to make the calendar sort of line up instead of a leap day like we get in the Gregorian calendar, February 29th, we get a leap month sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So this year we get leap month. And so, but the the month we get two of is the month of Adar, which we're in the month of Adar now. That's why I'm telling the story. And Adar leads into this like crazy festive holiday called Purim. Yeah. And so the reason I'm telling you all this is that we are supposed to do things actively to like increase our joy. Hey, I like that. Or like increase, I don't know, other people's joy. We're supposed to increase joy. Yeah. And so I'm going to tell our religious school kids this weekend that we're supposed to increase joy. And I'm like really hoping that that's going to mean flash mobs. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm going to try to let them decide how they want to increase our joy. So in a year like this one, do you celebrate Purim twice? No, no. You, you only celebrate it once at the end, but you have... Two months. You prepare for it for two months. Anticipation. Mm -hmm. I love that, Amy. You know, the these the winter months to me between sort of the holiday season and when the flowers bloom. I really Mm -hmm. like I struggle this time of year. And in the Christian calendar, there's nothing. Like we enter in a couple of weeks, we're gonna enter into the season of Lent, which is like really depressing. And we're supposed to reflect on, you know, sinfulness and brokenness and all these things, which which is a great thing to do, but it's a hard thing to do. In the middle of winter, I, I wish that we had a holiday where we could all dress up in fancy clothes and. Aren't you supposed to like drink until you can't tell? 
yeah. came in from Mordecai. you are supposed to you are supposed to eat meat and get drunk <laughs> yes. you're supposed to do not every day during Adar but yes at, at yeah. Purim itself mm-hmm. I feel like that is an ideal holiday for the depth of the it's, winter drearies yeah it's a it's a fascinating a fascinating holiday it's like carnival sort of yeah, yeah we're yeah. like I mean I don't know yeah it turns everything on its head let's do all the things we're not supposed to do yeah yeah, we're just mixing it up, biding our time till the flowers bloom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. So one of, one of the, the little pops of joy that I had this week was reading this guy, this guy who was born blind and then that we're going to read about this yeah. week. I just love him. I just, <laughs> he's just real. He like shoots from the hip. Yeah. I, I, I'm quite enamored yeah i'm looking forward to hearing your take on him i i think yeah. he's an interesting character too but i don't know that i've had quite the same like level of love for him that that, you, that i can see on your love. face I, you know so yeah. maybe <laughs> yeah i don't know was we'll, hopefully i'll still love him at the end i wish he had a name i want to yeah. call him something but other than like the blind guy <laughs> yeah that's an unfortunate thing in scripture right the unnamed characters tend to get named by the sort of distinctive characteristic yeah yeah right I am determined not to call him that. I don't think that's the most important part of his story. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree with you. We'll think of a name by the end. After it's it's too late. Yeah. Great. So we are in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, which is all one story. It's a lot of verses, but it's all one story. So it hangs together. Hangs together. It's meant to hang together. Should we just should we just pop in? Do you want to give us any kind of introduction? I think we should just pop in. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So I am reading from the NRSV. As he walked along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. I'm like picturing how to tell this story to children without encouraging them to like make spit mud and spread it on people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's worse things you could do. Like uh, spit mud? Yes, but spit mud spread on someone else's face without their... Without their consent. This is a problem. Consent. Yes. This is a problem. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Fair enough. Don't do Don't that. Do this. Don't do this particular thing. Yeah. It is interesting the degree to which the man who you like so much, you know, in yeah. the rest of the text, like, has no part in this at all. Like he's, no. he's almost like a stage prop that yes. Jesus decides to heal in yes. a in, in very public way, in an, interesting, in an interesting kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I, I found that a little, like, disturbing in the moment that it unfolds. Obviously, it turns out okay, you yeah. know, we, we do hear from this man and it's, and it's a good thing, but, but if you picture it unfolding in the moment and saying nothing to this man, 
he may or may not even know what you're doing. Like, I don't know what his awareness was. And then have someone spread spit mud on his disabled body part. Like, I would, I don't know. I would imagine that was kind of a frightening thing in the moment for him. It reminds me a little bit of this story that we read a couple of weeks ago about the the guy who wasn't unable to walk and he was sitting next to the pool. And there Jesus also approached him without being invited. Although there was more of a sort of conversation before it actually, the healing actually happened that gave some yeah. consent, sort of. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to me that, you know, we've talked about sometimes Jesus seems pretty reluctant to approach people and do miracles. In these two stories, he's been very, very this in this story, very, very forward about yeah. going and finding someone and healing them, sort of unasked. So it's just interesting to watch in the Gospel of John. When, when people ask him to do something, he's like, eh, he eventually yeah. will do it, right? But yeah. he, he's a little yeah. hesitant. And then when no one asks him, he's like, he's totally on it. I'm and paying attention this. to the differences in those two, I think is important. No, I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think it sort of underscores what we've been talking about for weeks now, which is that the healings maybe serve a different purpose for Jesus than they do. Yeah. They do for that, you know, for the person who's getting the healing in that moment yeah. or the person who feels that urgent want, you know, that urgent need. Yeah. Can you tell us something, some kind of context that would help us make sense out of this question from his disciples yeah. in verse two? Who sinned that he was born blind? Yeah, I mean, so in the ancient world and in certain strains of thought in ancient Judaism as well. This was sort of a, an understanding that sin could be visited on children. We, we see this in Exodus in 30, Exodus 34. God says, in mm-hmm. visiting the iniquities of the parents mm-hmm. on the children to the third and fourth generation. So there's this idea in Judaism at the time, not unique to Judaism at the time, that sins of earlier generations could be sort of retribution could be taken on succeeding generations. In in one kind of way, I mean, this is a really useful way of saying, like, why does it seem like, you know, bad thing, uh, good things happen to bad people, you know, like, wicked people get rewarded all the time in life. And, and this is a way theologically of saying, well, it's gonna, it's gonna come back to them, it just might be after they, after they die, like, that's kind Mm, of, that's interesting. It's not so much about like, what is fair to this individual human life. It's, it's much more of a shared intergenerational fate. That's it. This idea, the question did the child sin, right? And so he's born blind. And so then there's an implication that if he did something yeah. wrong, there must have been like oh, a have prenatal, <laughs> prenatal sin. sin. Yeah, this oh, is my. actually talked about in some of the ancient texts about the considering the possibility whether, you know, it goes back to that Genesis, wherever that is, Genesis 24, where Jacob and Esau wrestle in the womb. Yeah. And so there's this idea that there actually is like a, a life that you have in the womb and it would in- technically be possible to sin in the womb and therefore be born blind because of some, you know, womb misdeed of yours, I guess. And so this is the argument, like, and the assumption seems to be it's, it's going to be one or the other of these, like either his parents or something he did. You know, I can tell you that one of my children, I'm not joking, required me to eat sausage McMuffins during my pregnancy. <laughs> I mean, I remember buying the sausage McMuffins and sitting, I did not eat any, like this, don't, don't eat pork, don't really eat McDonald's, don't eat like any of this stuff. And I remember buying them and then sitting in the car with these sausage McMuffins and thinking like, I, I can't eat this. This is disgusting. Yeah. Like, I can't do it. And I started crying at the thought of not eating them. 
Oh, no. <laughs> and then I ate them so fast, I bit my finger. Bobby, oh. it was so bad. <laughs> that is such a sad, tragic story. Sinful and I'm little and fetus. I, I know. Luckily, yeah. she was born healthy. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it almost reminds me a little bit of like, it's some sort of inverse of prosperity gospel. Yeah. They're yeah. very much of a, of a part. Yeah. If you are yeah. a if you are a good person, you will be rewarded, which means if you have been rewarded, you must be a good person. And then the flip yeah. side of that is this, you, you shouldn't be suffering unless somebody did something wrong. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the Hebrew scriptures are divided about this. And so you get both Jeremiah and Ezekiel trying to break that correlation and saying, yes, look, people, you know, it's not, I guess, what's that saying? The, the parents eat grapes and the children's teeth are set on end or whatever. I forget. Yeah, I, yeah. I shouldn't have started catchy, down that road. It's a catchy phrase. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah both say, no, no, a person's responsible for their own misdoings. Yeah. So the tradition is divided, but yeah. here the tradition seems to be being invoked in a way that says it must be either one or the other, which gives right. Jesus it an opportunity. It must be one or the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I interrupted you, which gives Jesus an opportunity to, to stand offer a third way. That. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Which is yep. not really unique. Uh, what is what I'm trying to say is like what Jesus suggests here is not unique to Jesus, but in the, in the text, it appears as though, as though it is. Oh, I like that. I like that point in particular. There's something in the text later that made me think along those lines too. Mm-hmm. So then what do you think it means what do you think Jesus means when he says he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him? Yeah. Does the, do you understand that to mean like this is an opportunity for miraculous healing or that somehow God's works are revealed in particular through difference or through disability in our bodies because our attention is there in a different place? Or how do you, how do you understand? what Jesus is getting at. Here. I love the way you asked that question because it opens up some different kinds of possibilities. You know, the way this is often read is Jesus is saying something fairly wooden, which is he was born blind so I could give him sight and everyone could yeah. be impressed. <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> which is kind of a utilitarian sort of notion. And I mean, I think that probably is in part what the text has in mind. But yeah. when you read on in the story, this person actually comes not just to a physical sight, but in the understanding of John to like this deep spiritual insight as well. He truly understands what God is up to by the end of this text. And I do think what, where you sort of, where your question led me anyway, to say this text is saying something about the capacity, like difference in the capacity for, for some people to see differently, maybe because they are sort of excluded from what society considers mm-hmm. the normative ways of mm-hmm. experiencing the world. They have some openness to insight from other aspects of experience. I think that's where you were headed anyway. And, and I really like yeah. that if, if that's what you were thinking. Yeah. I think in, in so many ways, reading this passage made me think about the ways that if you are, if the sort of typical human experience, oh gosh, even words fail me here, but what we sort of picture is a typical human experience. If you feel somewhat outside of that for, for various reasons that might be disability or might be some other thing related to your background or identity, it makes you pay attention differently to things, yeah. you know? Cause you're it sort is. Of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, cause you're sort of born outside the box in some ways. And so, yeah. I think that's right. And you've, you've sort of gestured to this idea previously this, this spring, and I, and I really appreciate it. And, you know, if you think about who has sort of understood who Jesus is thus far in the gospel, it's 
a woman from Samaria. It's a man who is unable to walk. It's this guy who is unable to see. His disciples are from Galilee. Like, can anything good come out of Galilee? And the people who are not <laughs> able to see are people who are sort of part of the, the yeah. main structures, the yeah. structures of privilege in Jerusalem, in the religious center. And so we have this sort of, you know, understanding, lack of understanding that's being shaken out along the lines that you're describing. Yeah, yeah. And I like, I like how it plays out in this story. One of the things that's interesting to me there is that you can trip up on what Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me. Mm-hmm. And some, some manuscripts read, I must do the work of him who sent me. And some manuscripts read, we must do the work of him who sent us. But mm-hmm. the, tr- the manuscript evidence suggests that the, this translation is actually right. We must do the works of him who sent me, which is to suggest, I think, that God has sent Jesus to do certain kinds of work in the world, but it's not just Jesus's work. It is also the work of those who believe in Jesus, right? So that Jesus is sort of spreading the responsibility out amongst uh, his disciples. Is that, is that how you re- would read that? I like that a lot. I hadn't noticed that detail in the text, mm-hmm. but I really, I really like that. And I'm thinking about it sort of as it, as it fits with the second part of that sentence, night is coming when no one can work. Mm-hmm. So this particular call, I guess, is for the life while Jesus is alive yeah. on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The use of night and day and dark and light in, in John is persistent and, mm-hmm. and kind of an interesting usage. But yeah, that's the way I read that as while it's daytime means while Jesus is present. And then nighttime means after Jesus has, has departed. Yeah. And he goes on to say, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so that sort of clarifies that a little bit. So we started out talking about this, you know, that, that Jesus makes this like spit mud yeah. cast, like some kind of bizarro facial thing. Yeah. Can you, like, do you have any thoughts on the particular mechanism through which this healing is carried out? Because presumably Jesus could just say, you know, we told the other guy, get up and walk. Yeah. So what do you see in the, in the mechanism for this healing? Yeah. I mean, one thing to say about that is, the spit of certain people was understood in the ancient world to have healing properties. So we read about the emperor Vespasian healing people with his spit and things like that. So this Mm -hmm. idea that saliva contributes to healing is not specific to this text, but kind of a Mm -hmm. shared understanding in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. The mixing with mud, I'm a little less clear. There's going to be an issue about Sabbath later. Uh, Spoiler alert. And so maybe the mixing <laughs> with mud, right? Maybe the mixing with mud is part of that issue of, you know, he's needed these two things together and needing right, things so is something yeah, you're not supposed, you're not to, not do. supposed to do. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the last detail in this little section that was interesting to me is Jesus tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. So it's not exactly that the spit and mud do the healing. It's the spit and mud and then the washing in the pool of Siloam. What, what can you, do you, we talked about the pool of Siloam a little bit. Last time, yeah. I think it was. What, remind us about that. So we talked about the Pool of Siloam is, it's like right adjacent to the temple. And I think the context in which we talked about it was that at Sukkot, at the Harvest Festival, they would, where they're sort of celebrating abundance and rain and praying for more rain and crops, they would take a, a pitcher of water from Siloam and sort of pour it out to, and it was a very joyful, joyful act. And I think it was sort of like a, like a reservoir, like it filled with rainwater, yeah. living mm-hmm. waters, you know, 
when there was rain. So it was sort of a symbol of abundance in the desert in that way. Yeah. I don't know. Are you thinking anything else about Siloam? To me, it's just interesting that, you know, like we were saying, Jesus probably could have done this healing without the mud and the spit. And it would, presumably <laughs> Jesus could have done this healing without sending him to Siloam. And so it's kind of an interesting like effort, I think, on the part of John anyway, to connect Jesus with things that came mm. before him again. And mm-hmm. so this is not mm-hmm. something like that's totally new and different, but it's Jesus connects back to the thing that's important in the tradition that he comes out of, but he's doing something different with it. Yeah. Maybe. I like that. I like that. All right. Should we pick up? Let's pick up. Let, let's see what the people say about this little miracle. I'm picking up in verse eight. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. I think it's so interesting here how many times the man, like how many times we're told what happens. Like the narrator tells us what happened. And then they ask the man and the man tells the crowd what happened. And then the Pharisees ask him and the man again tells the crowd, tells the Pharisees what happened. Why do you think we get the, why do you think we get that so many times? It is so fascinating. And they're like, is this the guy? I don't think that's the guy. That might be the guy. And he's like, hey. Oh, it kind of looks like the guy, but I mean, maybe it's not the guy. Yeah. Any guy. I mean, (laughs) I read that in a couple of ways. One is. Uh, about the difficulty of people accepting something that sort of appears to be outside of what they yeah. can imagine to be true. And so yeah. they just keep, there's like, there's no way that this is what has happened. So they keep pushing. And the other is something about the degree to which people don't trust the testimony of people that they consider to be outside of the mainstream or however you want to think about it. Like this guy was, he was blind. Yeah. He was a beggar. and so. They just don't trust him when he says that he's the guy. He's got to be, they think he must be pulling some kind of a, you know, a scam, I guess. Yeah. Which is familiar to me, actually, from the work, the work that I do at Mercy Church. Like, pe- people are always, I mean, and, you know, they're not always <laughs> terribly trustworthy, just like the rest of us are not yeah. always terribly trustworthy. Yeah. But there seems to be, you know, one imagines that this guy were somebody of higher status, that people would be like, oh, my goodness, like, that is you. But with, with this guy, they're like, ah. Even though you're there saying, it's me, it's me. We, we don't actually believe you. What do you do with that repetition? Actually, it didn't, the repetition didn't really stand out to me until I was reading it aloud. Yeah. I was like, wow, this recounts the details many times. Yeah. But what you were just saying was making me think of 
uh, I mean, I was struck at the end that the Pharisees who have been reluctant to take seriously anything that any non-scholarly person has had to say about anything, they ask him, what do you say about him? Mm. And I just... Like thinking back to what you were just saying about yeah. like we we sort of ask people, but but if they don't say what we want them to say, then you you know keep fishing around for a different answer. Like we sort of want to know what you think, but we also want to reserve the right to dismiss what you think. I don't know. I thought it was striking that these pretty close-minded Pharisees yeah. so far have been willing to entertain what what he thinks of his own experience like does his does his experience give him insight into who Jesus is I I guess but a very different kind of a different kind of insight yeah no he's definitely got insight but it but it's interesting their sort of their process and and you're exactly right and we seem to have a division in the Pharisees now and it's a little bit of division that we were wishing that they would have had last time when, when Nicodemus mm-hmm. was like, hey, y'all, we say the prophet doesn't, or the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, but we also have this thing where we yeah. should hear people out. Here, they're yeah. actually more than yeah. just Nicodemus seems to be doing that. And so now we've got these two possibilities. One is he's a sinner who breaks Sabbath law because he did whatever he did on the Sabbath day. The other is he must be sent from God because a sinner can't do a miraculous thing. And so they're taking the testimony of this guy and they're trying to process it through their understanding of the tradition. And they've got two kind of different paths they can go down. Yeah. But you're right. It is a little, it is a step beyond where we have seen, like now we get the sense that there's more of this group of sort of elite religious scholars who are open to the possibilities. Yeah. Who are willing to, you know, last time we talked about people who are sort sort of so attached to a particular set of, rules that they believe are ironclad yeah that they're unwilling to see miracles that don't seem to follow those rules and that i feel like that's what we have again here is like this sort of ironclad somewhat ironclad maybe a slightly less than before but idea pre-existing idea in their mind that someone who is you know connected to god would not be doing this stuff on the sabbath but then you know there, there's more and more weight on the other side of the equation. Like, well, then how do you explain this? Yeah. And of course, we've seen previously this idea that God works on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, because uh-huh, Jesus uh-huh. is doing God's work, Jesus is technically in his own understanding, or at least in John's understanding, is not actually violating Sabbath law. He can do it because he's God and God works on the Sabbath. So there's sort of a third option that the Pharisees have not really considered, but they're opening up to this, uh, to the idea, other ideas, other possibilities. Yeah. Okay. This question is a little bit maybe from left field where I tend to spend my time, but in earlier texts, when Jesus was speaking about himself, you pointed out a couple of times that he says, I am yeah. he, or I am, yeah. you know, and it's this connection to God's statement yeah. that I am who I am. I was wondering, it, it stood out to me in verse uh, nine. In, in verse nine, yeah, and then somewhat in verse, yeah, it's all in verse nine. It stood out to me in verse nine that we get, it is he, and I am 
the man. Mm-hmm. Did that make your ears tingle too? Or do you think that's just a function of weird translation from Greek? No, it's actually the Greek is ego e me. It's the same. It's the same Greek. Mm. The CEB has, it's me, <laughs> um, which I think is kind of, I mean, which is technically true. Uh, yeah. It sounds very different than I am when you say it's me. Yeah. And I don't quite know what to do with that because we have definitely had a yeah. theological reading of I am when Jesus says it. And, and yeah. here it's on the lips of this guy who's clearly not to be equated with God. No. Right. Right. I wonder, I mean, one way of sort of thinking about it is, you know, Jesus has been saying this all along and no one has been believing him. And here we have another sort of person saying, I am, and no one is believing him either, even, even though the claim is much mm-hmm. simpler. It's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But I, it's a, it is an interesting sort of usage. And, the, and ego a me is, I mean, it's fairly, I mean, it's just normal Greek, right? It's, it's yeah. what you would say. Yeah. Yeah. And also it has this other resonance. And so which way we're supposed to read the resonances or, or whether you just say, well, that's just the way people talk. Right. Do you, what, do you do anything with that? I mean, I don't, I, I want to. Mm-hmm. I want to think about sort of God moving in this mm. person or this person, you know, being a place where God reveals God's yeah. self. Or, oh, I like that, yeah. Or something like that. I don't know that it's really upheld by the text might be a little bit of a of a push but like i'm thinking back to this idea that god's works are revealed yeah i don't know that god might inhabit differently a person but certain but certainly yes we have to be careful not to equate it with jesus's statements but he's not saying i am jesus or like i am the son of man he's just saying i am the man that's so interesting because i was paying attention to my sort of internal editor and when you started down that road i'm like nope 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 <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah this guy cannot be saying i am in that sense but then like yes. where you ended up i actually i really think that's worth thinking about and you know like i'm trying to make my internal editor my internal like uh, heresy monitor calm down a little bit <laughs> because i mean no, we just I mean, yeah we just finished reading a text where you know jesus said when you eat my flesh i abide in you and you abide in me and So there really is this sense or like when you, when you, once you've had living water, like you become a source of living water. Like we really have been moving around this idea that once you have encountered Jesus in a certain Mm -hmm. kind of way, like you yourself become some kind of different witness. You have a different connection so that you're not entirely distinguishable, right? You, the, the, the life that you live is in some way. Uh, different. It abides in yeah. Jesus and Jesus is working out through you. And so I, I really think there's something there that's, that's worth thinking about when he says ego me, he could not have said it with that resonance, you know, 10 minutes ago, but yeah. now he says it in a way that says Jesus is working or God is working out something in me. I, yeah. Yeah. I think that's worth thinking about, even though my initial reaction. Even though, is, it, yeah, no, it, there have to be a lot of, uh, we have to be careful not to go too far down that slope. <laughs> yeah. But like John likes to do, he he just throws some confusing ideas out there and yeah, sees what sees what we might do with them. The other thing that this guy has done, which I think is interesting, is you know when he talks about Jesus in verse eleven, he says the man they called Jesus made mm-hmm. mud, and then in verse seventeen, when they say who did this, they say or what do you say about Jesus? He says he's a prophet. So he's making these kind of moves across the text, and we'll, we'll see that they continue. Yeah from Jesus as a man who is a healer to Jesus as a prophet. 
So it's interesting to kind of watch this guy. He's, he's continuing to be transformed. He's, he's continuing to gain insight in addition to his physical sight. I, I'm going to hold on to that reading of him. I think that part of what I love about him is like, he's, he's, he just says what he knows. Like he just, you know, you asked me what happened that I can see. I'm going to tell you what happened that I can see. And I'm just going to tell you simply, and I'm not going to interpret the events for you. I'm not going to draw conclusions about it because you didn't ask for my conclusions. Yeah. But when they do ask for his conclusions, then he'll tell them his conclusions. Yeah. Like he just seems very like, I don't know. I just like this guy. I want to like go yeah. get a beer with him. Yeah. Hey everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. And do we have an exciting deal for you. This month, you can receive all the benefits of being a Bible Worm subscriber for the introductory price of just $4. Throughout the month of February, subscribers at any level will receive early access to episodes, as well as weekly liturgies and video lectures to accompany each podcast episode for the entire month. Plus, you'll get a terrific Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of your friends and family. There's no obligation, and you can cancel at any time. If you want to take advantage of this special offer, visit us at patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 for the month. If you've always wondered what it's like to be a Bible Worm subscriber, hope you'll join us in this special offer. And now, back to this week's episode. Picking up in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. I think this is a really funny, like, sort of sidebar story. Yeah. Like Can you say a little bit him. about why? I did, like they didn't believe him, so they called his parents. Like it's yeah. like when my <laughs> when my kids like don't want. I mean, they don't do it anymore. But when they were little and would threaten to call my parents and tell them what a terrible mother I was, you know, <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> you know, I don't know. I just I think it's funny, but it did make me wonder. Like, how old is this a man, man, or is this like a fourteen year old? It kind of changes your reading, doesn't it? We don't really yeah. know, do we? He no. He is of age means I guess he's. Older than 12, maybe, or something like that. He's, yeah. he's a teenager. Yeah. Or he could be like 40. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it really changes. Like, if you read him as a 40-year-old and they're calling his parents and saying, like, is this guy really your son? Like, that's very different in my head than, like, he's just barely, you know, yeah. he's 13 or whatever, and, and you're asking. But I, yeah. don't know how, I don't know how we should read it. Yeah. yeah. I kind of like the challenge of reading it as he's older because... You know, there is a sense in which people who are beggars in particular uh, have to beg to survive are sort of infantilized by society mm-hmm. a little bit. And like mm-hmm. nobody, nobody trusts them. Mm-hmm. And so like to me, I think it's interesting to read him that way as he's a, he's a, he's a full grown man. And mm-hmm. yet people don't trust him because of sort of his, his background. Yeah. 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 And you know, when I first read his his parents' response, like, yes, that's our son, and yes, he was born blind. After that, 
go talk to him. Like, stop yeah. trying to go around and ask yeah, us. Yeah. I really liked that until the note yeah. that the re- <laughs> yeah. they're just trying to like throw him under the bus. Can yeah. you say a little more? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting progression. Yeah. I mean, that I think this note that his, his parents send the Pharisees or send the Jews back to the, their son because they're afraid that they'll get kicked out. Yeah. If they, I guess they're afraid they'll be kicked out if they report what they know of how he was healed. I don't know. I feel like the next part is a big jump. Yeah. Like the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Yeah. Like, we, no one's been talking about that. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot, a lot of scholarly writing about this verse because you're exactly right. There's nothing so far in the Gospel of John that suggests that anything like this has been happening. And, and it's anachronistic in the life of yeah. Jesus to think that this even could have been happening, really. And so a lot of scholars think this reflects a later time period, maybe the time period of the community that's reading John or the author of the Gospel of John who maybe have been kicked out of the synagogue or at least feel alienated from the synagogue. And so they're reflecting back their own experience later back into this text and saying, well, this is what eventually happens. So we can see ourselves in this choice that that these parents have to make. It's all a little sort of circumspect, but it seems to be the case that at least the audience, the initial audience of John might have recognized themselves in, in this decision that has to be made here. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it also, you know, when I said no one's talking about that, I actually wasn't thinking no one's talking about kicking you out of the synagogue, although that's mm. also has been true. I was thinking no one in this story has been talking about confessing Jesus as the Messiah. Like, yeah, even the man himself has been fairly measured in what he's reported. And it seems yeah. like the parents could have been similarly measured and said, this man, Jesus, put this, st-, you know, like this is yeah. how it happened. So it just seems like a big, it feels a little out of place to me. Yeah, so you get the sense that if they say, yes, Jesus healed him, that that's going to be understood apparently in the story as a confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Even though the man himself has only ever said he's a prophet. Yeah, it just seems like, yeah, just everything like ratcheted up. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of levels. It's interesting too about whether like you get the impression as you were saying initially that they don't actually know who healed him. Like they- they weren't yeah. there. They weren't there. But then you get the impression then in this latter part of this yeah. that they're, they do know and they're hiding it because they don't want to get in trouble. And it makes a lot of difference, even though it's not explicit in the text, whether you think the parents do or do not know. Yeah. Or whether they feel like they can't even just say, like they could repeat, they could say, this is what our son is saying and we believe our son, right? But they, yeah. they don't say that. They say, you go ask him what he's saying. And so they do distance them themselves. I mean, to me, there's an interesting kind of opening interpretively here about the kind of divisions that religious belief can cause in families. Yeah. And, you know, here there's a family that seems to be kind of suddenly being disrupted by this amazing thing, really, that has happened. Mm-hmm. But the responses to it are causing a, a rift that maybe does or does not need to be there both between the son and his parents, and then also between whoever believes in this miracle and their religious community, there's all sorts of division that suddenly just shows up because of Jesus. 
seems to be kind of a key moment in this in this text and, and a key theme in this gospel and, and probably worth thinking about a little bit as interpreters. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think somewhat relatedly, another thing that that stood out to me in this, and and we've, you know, you certainly have underscored this for us before, but it's very strange. Like this is apparently it hasn't identified this man as being Jewish, but apparently they're Jewish if the parents are concerned yeah. about being kicked out of the synagogue. I think so, yeah. So for the text to say his parents, these Jews, said this because they were afraid of the Jews is very is a very strange turn <laughs> of is. phrase. Yeah. And so I think from the perspective of the text, it's clearly setting up this like differential between believers and the Jews and the Jews are the bad guys. But it's helpful to me to remember when it says the Jews here, it means the religious authorities, yeah, like the authorities of their religious community. Yeah. Clearly it's not all the Jews because they're Jews. That's right. Exactly right. But the text doesn't want us to think about it that way. Like it's trying to set up the the differentiation between Jews and and followers of Jesus, I guess. Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of conversation about how John uses the term hoiudaioi, the Jews. Mm. And he uses it sometimes just to talk about people from Judea. He uses it sometimes to talk about people who, you know, are Jewish religiously. He uses it sometimes to talk about Jewish authorities, which is what he seems to be doing here. And whether he is intentionally vague or just not very precise, you know, like whether he's in, in trying to merge all these groups together or not, from our perspective, they certainly get muddled and it's hard to tell who's who. And I think you're exactly right that the concern here is about religious authorities, not about, you know, your average Jewish person in Jerusalem. But that's not clear at all in, in the text. Yeah. All right. Should we move on? Yes. Okay. Picking up in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. I love this guy. I feel like he's like this guy that the the unnamed man who has been given his sight. I feel like it's like going to a like a logic professor (laughs) who's like, let me break this down for you. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Yeah. Here are some conclusions we can draw. Yeah. I just love him. Yeah. No, I appreciate your affection for him. (laughs) (laughs) Like, 
I think he's an interesting character, but I have not, I don't think I have appreciated him in the way that you are appreciating him. And I, you're really opening up that character for me. <laughs> yeah. I just picture him like in front of a, like a big blackboard saying like. <laughs> yeah. A little chalky hands. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's not, he does not seem to be making any big statements of. Yeah. Belief. He's yeah. just laying out. Here's the data. Yeah. And I love that he starts with, you know, the, the, the authorities start out with give glory to God. I guess they mean that in contradistinction, contradistinction to giving glory to the man, Jesus. Is that how you read that? Why would they, why would they start out with give glory to God? So the way I would understand that is this sort of give glory to God is sort of like a, I don't know, it's like an oath formula is sort of how Gail mm. Day describes it as like, it's a way of saying, seriously, you, you got to tell the truth now. So give glory to God. This man is a sinner. Which kind that of interesting sense. because, you know, there's some irony there. Like John likes to have ironic statements. And so this give glory to God is like exactly what the man has been doing. Mm-hmm. But, but they don't read it that they don't understand it that way. So they're, they're saying to tell the truth would be to say that this man is a sinner. Right. But in fact, he's already been giving glory to God by, by saying that Jesus is, is a prophet. Yeah. And then I just, I love that he doesn't start with like, no, he's not. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to fight you. He starts with, I don't, I don't know, know whether he's yeah. a sinner. I don't know this guy. Yeah. I just Here's met him I too. Mm-hmm. Right. Here's what I know. And I, and I love also that, he's, <laughs> that he says, why, I've already told you this. Yeah. <laughs> like, why are you asking me again? Like this. Yeah. My testimony has not changed. But then I was actually surprised to see this question. Do you also want to become his disciples? Yeah. Do you think the man sees himself as a disciple of Jesus at this point? I mean, it certainly sounds like it. Yeah. Although he has not given us any direct evidence of that. I mean, he's sort of been on his way there saying this man who healed me and then he's a prophet and then give, you know, um, but that's what it sounds like. And, and we've talked about in this gospel how people can become disciples based on other people's testimony. We saw that all the way back in John 1 with the, yeah. the first disciples who followed Jesus going and getting their friends and families and saying, come, come see this guy. We saw this with the woman, Samaritan woman at the well. And so there is a sense in which testimony has power in this gospel. And if I keep telling you what happened to me, eventually... You're going to believe it. I mean, he's yeah. poking at them too, right? Like, why yeah. do you keep asking it, you know? Yeah. But I do think there is something here too about the power of testimony that uh, if you hear the story often enough, you're going to end up being a believer too. So be careful what, you're, be careful what you ask for. Mm, that's interesting. That's really interesting that this testimony could have power on you that you didn't mean for it to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Yeah. That's very interesting. I just, I still am sort of taken if, if he is beginning to see himself as a disciple, that he does not, he, de- he won't jump to the end of the story. Like he won't come to Jesus's defense against their initial accusation yeah. immediately. Yeah. He just says like, here's what I know and here's what I don't know. And it just, I don't know. I think that's what I love about him. Like, and we've yeah. talked before about there, you know, that there are a lot of sort of easy entry ramps <laughs> to following Jesus and John. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's, that's what I see here. And if that's being equated with what it means for this person to be a disciple, like he's willing to call himself a disciple and he still won't say, I don't know whether he's a sinner. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of, 
it's kind of cool. I don't know. I feel like it's another it's another on ramp for me among all the on ramps. That it's interesting because John, in the popular imagination, is often understood as it's not exactly a high bar for discipleship, but it's a sense that some, that you need to be able to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? That uh, that all who believe in Him should have eternal life, and that people tend to think that belief means being able to say out loud, Jesus is the son of God, or at least Jesus is not a sinner. Yeah. But what you're pointing to, which I think is right, is that belief in this gospel does not mean that. Belief means just trusting what you know, right? Like trusting Jesus. Mm -hmm. And this guy does trust Jesus. Um, He healed me. I know he did. Like, that's what I know. And And that's enough. I think that's exactly right. It's enough for here. Like he does yeah. get further he does. in the next chunk of text we read, but. But he's already a disciple, or at least he seems to be associating himself with that, like, like you're saying. Yeah. So the trust is the thing. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter exactly what you think or exactly what you say. Mm-hmm. It just matters that the trust is what matters. Right. For right. Or what you're still working out in your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think of the religious leader's response to this whole testimony that he gives. You know, he says, we don't know where he came from. He made a blind man see. We assume this is through God. Mm -hmm. We know God doesn't respond to sinners. Therefore, this man must be from God. Like he takes us through the whole logic proof and they don't really respond to his points, but they cut down his credibility. Yeah. To me, that's so true to the way people are. Like, yeah all of us, I think, or at least many of us, that we know what we know, or we know what we think we know. And instead of being able to take on new evidence, then we move to the ad hominem attacks Mm -hmm. and dismiss the person as a person. That's very familiar to me. And, you know, I'm I'm sure that I'm guilty of of doing that along the way. The other thing that we've we've talked about uh, previously is this idea that God is working in ways that the religious leaders have not been entirely prepared for. Like mm-hmm. you sort of feel like they're close to getting what's happening, but they can't make the move because they have a text that says, you know, working on the Sabbath is a sin or mm-hmm. the Messiah can't be from Galilee mm-hmm. and they, and they get stuck there and mm-hmm. God is doing something related, but off to the side and they're, yeah. they're sort of, narrow understanding prevents them from seeing that God moves out outside of their narrow understanding. To me, this is really useful, not for thinking about like what's, what was wrong with the Pharisees, but for, for diagnosing our sort of own relationship to God in our traditions and to say, yeah, God is in our traditions. And also God is free to work in new ways that our traditions weren't fully prepared for. And so we need to pay attention to the points at which we sort of shut down or stop listening to people or not accepting testimony or explaining things away. Because yeah. we say, well, that can't be the way God is. Like, mm, like God can kind of be how God is, right? <laughs> like, I yeah. am who I am. Uh, I will be who I will be. And, and so to me, this is interesting as a religious leader myself to say, like, okay, well, where are the points at which I dismiss mm-hmm. what seems to be fairly obvious, you know, testimony mm-hmm. from others? Be- mm-hmm. Because I just can't allow that God could do that, that thing. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I think those are exactly the questions that should be raising for us. As, as modern readers. Okay, should I read this last little bit? Well, what do you make of the, uh, you're his disciple, but we're Moses' disciple? Mm. Like the, yeah. 
That's not a phrase that I'm familiar with. Mm-mm. Disciples of Moses. I mean, Moses didn't really, I mean, yeah. I mean, certainly there are. It depends what we mean by disciple. If we mean like students of and in the lineage of, certainly that organizational principle was operative in the in the Jewish community. But the idea of being a disciple of Moses, I, I, I'm not familiar with that language. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Like that's not a common way of understanding what it means to be Jewish now or or in the first century. And so it's kind of interesting that the the gospel is working out categories of Yeah. You gotta be somebody's disciple or Right. Or maybe the right. Pharisees we need a are, parallel category. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that's going on there is, you know, Moses received the word of God at Sinai. And so there's a there's a trust of him. Mm-hmm. according to this text. Mm-hmm. The irony that John is trying to play with, I think, is that Jesus is the word that Moses received on Sinai. And so there's no need for a distrust of him if you only kind of knew what was actually happening. But the Pharisees are seeing these as two totally separate things. I'm either this right. or I'm that. John is saying, well, if you were truly truly a disciple of Moses, you would recognize that Jesus is the the very word. I see. Yep. Yes. We saw a conclusion like that, I think, in the last reading we did, too. Yeah. That if, mm-hmm. you, if you had ever understood what the Torah was doing, mm-hmm. you would recognize. You would see mm-hmm. that this is, yeah, this is Torah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Shall I take us home? Yes. Okay. So picking up then in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Mm. (laughs) Okay. It seems to me like, you know, I really appreciate that you have pointed out along the way how this man has been sort of talking about his understanding of Jesus or his relationship to Jesus different, you know, differently. Mm-hmm. It's been evolving each mm-hmm. time he tells the story because it makes this last part seem less abrupt. When yeah. I read it on my own, I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa, he's worshiping him. He's worshiping him. That's um, like a big, a big jump from saying, I don't know if he's a sinner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you, th- do you, do you, I mean, does worship him mean, we haven't seen that before, have we? That someone has worshiped him? Or have we? That seems like a big, that seems like a big statement to me. Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. One is that the Greek could mean worship. It could also mean bow down or kneel down or show homage. Mm. So the, the translation worship implies a certain sort of religious commitment that the yeah. Greek verb maybe doesn't. And so thinking about, well, what's he actually doing? Is he worshiping or is he, you know, bowing down yeah. to someone he regards as his superior? Yeah. Not, in, not entirely clear. 
Yeah. If in fact it's about worship, then yes, this is the first time we've seen any mention of worshiping Jesus. It, it you know, and that's an interesting. Um, I don't know. Resonates also with this. There's in my translation, thirty six, he calls Jesus sir, mm-hmm. and then in thirty eight, he calls Jesus Lord. Yeah. But I think those are the same Greek word. So there is there's ambiguity here about what exactly the man thinks. Clearly, he thinks Jesus is someone deserving of honor but it's a little unclear some of what's beyond that. Yeah, that's interesting. Is the, the word in both verses is courier, which mm. is the word that you use for someone who is your superior, sort of like in medieval usage of lords and ladies. Yeah. And it is also the word that gets used of God in the Hebrew scriptures yeah. where the, you know, in the place of the tetragrammaton. And so it can have like this whole range of meanings as can the word uh, to worship here, bow down. And so I think there's some ambiguity about what, what John is actually saying. Yeah. That's so interesting because I, you know, my initial question reading it from the English and not from the Greek was what has, what has changed from just a few minutes ago to now that suddenly he is willing to, uh, to make these big statements about Jesus yeah. and refer to Jesus as Lord and the, in the God kind of Lord or, or yeah. worship. But now I'm wondering, is that, is he even doing that? Well, I think he has clearly made some sort of a step. And I think the question yeah. is how, how big a step yeah. is it? Yeah. Right. And Jesus has said, look, I'm the son of man. And he says, and he seems to acknowledge that, which is kind of a big, a big deal. Like it, it yes. is a step short of saying that yeah. he is the son of God or, God made God incarnate or something. There's a lot of debate about son of man. I myself read son of man in light of Daniel chapter seven, where you get this sort of divine figure who is given authority over the world. And I read son of man that way. It can also be a reference to like a mortal, like a human being, yeah. which is very confusing. Like it either yeah, means it like really a divine different. figure. Like, <laughs> it's really different. Which kind of interesting in John in particular, because like, Jesus is both of those things. And so that one phrase, son of man, captures both his divine origin and also his humanity. Yeah. yeah. But that's a big step, I think, for this guy to say like, okay, I now believe that. And so whatever I'm doing, bowing down to you, worshiping you, it is with the new understanding that you are indeed the son of man, which mm-hmm. is something very mm-hmm. much beyond what he was able to say. Mm-hmm. And so your question of what has changed, I think is a really good question, even if you know, even if he's not gone all the way. Even if he's not all the way, it's still a, it's still a big, something has shifted. Yeah. Do you have any sense, like, do you have an answer to the question what has changed? I mean, my, my answer to the question is very, like, earthly and maybe somewhat mundane, but, like, he has, he has now been driven out of the, yeah. out of the community he was a part of. Yeah. So if he was already sort of on the edge of, of the community because he was blind, now he sees, but he's been driven completely out. Yeah. And that, that is, you know, like that is when a door closes, sometimes you see other, you yeah. see other things. I love that, Amy. I mean, it's troubling and, uh, but it's, I, you know, I think that's a really nice reading of the text that, you know, when the man is kicked out, that's when Jesus comes and finds him. And that's when the man is able to believe it in a different way. And so there is something here about Jesus looking out for those who have been removed from their communities 
who have not been able to understand them or, or what they're about or what their beliefs are. And Jesus, you know, I was lost, but now I'm found, right? I was blind, but yeah. now I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here, here comes Jesus to say, you're still part of my community. And now, now maybe you're open to a different kind of understanding. So I think that's exactly right. In the, in the fracture of community, there is new possibility, right. Right. even because though the fracture of community is really painful. It's really painful, but you are no longer beholden to a certain set of communal norms or, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and so it does, yeah, you, you lose things and you, and you gain things, I guess. This makes me go back and think about Nicodemus in chapter three and this idea of being born again from above. Mm-hmm. And so we talked in, in that discussion about, you know, being born is a painful process and it connects you to a different family than you were originally connected to. And it breaks your natural yeah. ties. And here I think is a version of that sort of, sort of playing out as he's been born now into Jesus's family, but it's been a pretty painful disruption painful. Of, of what has come before. Can you talk to me about Jesus's statement in, in 39 and the metaphor sort of carries us through to the end or maybe yeah. not metaphor, maybe not metaphor. I don't know about blindness and seeing I mean, so, so what he says is, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of that quote, I don't even know where it's from, but you've probably heard it too, that, that art or journalism, or I've seen various things stuck in here, is, is there to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Yeah. But that seems different than to make the make those who see blind. Why yeah. would you want to, why would you want to do that? And then, I mean, in the last verse, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So if you think you see, then you are actually blind. And that is sin. That is sin. Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated thing Jesus has done. And, you know, one thing we should probably say is Jesus's miracles tend to work in the gospel of John in this progression of there's a sign, there's a dialogue about the sign and then there's a discourse that jesus gives at this moment where the text is we're ending the narrative lectionary we've seen the sign and the and the dialogue but not the discourse which comes in chapter 10 which is actually the text for good friday which we'll talk about in our special episode that's coming up so jesus is going to do some work to interpret what he's saying right Mm, here and so i see so this need not be the we, we don't need to solve it all uh right now but i do think there's something going on here about you know we've talked about how john uses the term sin in the singular Uh, quite often, the sin of the world. And we talked early on about how John is not thinking of sins like the the individual things that we do that might violate some kind of moral code or violate the Torah or whatever, but some sort of larger phenomenon of the relationship to God or not. And I think one of the things that's happening here is those of us who think we see because we fit into the world, mm-hmm. are in, at risk of actually being blinded from the true reality, which is the godly reality that lies behind the world that we see. And so when we're too comfortable in the, in the world as we encounter it, we miss what's really going on. And Jesus, when Jesus comes into the world, he puts that choice, like now you can see what it looks like to follow the Torah. And if you realize that, now you see what's truly, truly real, which is the godly world that lies behind the reality that we experience. If you reject that and think you see the world the way you've always seen it, you are, you are blinded to the true reality. 
It's a very complicated idea mm -hmm. that gets caught up in these last couple of verses. Yeah, I mean, that it makes sense though. Like it get you know, you know, I think in images and I have all these sort of like almost hologrammy images of like, you know, what you what you think you see. Yeah. But the other thing that is that is there and actually more real in the way that different things sort of pull our attention, you know, the yeah. shiny, the shiny things in yeah. our our societies or whatnot. Okay, so I think that I think this whole line of of thinking, at least for me, is very much just leads me right into concluding yeah. thoughts that we might bring forward from this text. So I will ask you the weekly question, Bobby. Yeah. What is rising to the top for you? Yeah, I've been struggling to stay in the like the ancient text this whole time. You can sort of yeah. uh, several times I've been sort of pushing toward like, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? And so. You know, I think that this text to me is really resonant in all kinds of ways with contemporary life. The one that I'm really drawn to, and I've been kind of gesturing toward it along the way, is, is what I was just talking about, mm -hmm. which is this idea that there is, a, there is a reality behind the reality that we experience. And according to the Gospel of John, that reality, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is the community that God envisions from the Torah all the way through the Gospel, that that is the real reality that we are meant to inhabit. It's not some kind of distant place where you go when you die, although maybe it also is that, mm -hmm. but it's also a way that you inhabit the world here and now. And this text, I think, is putting that front and center. There is a world that we are meant to inhabit. There is a world that we currently inhabit, and they are not the same. And the, for the Gospel of John, the decision point is Jesus. When you encounter Jesus and you see the love that Jesus has, and when you, when you recognize that God desires the reconciliation of the whole world, and that there is plenty that Jesus can offer, that God can offer, you know, that we saw in the feeding of the 5,000, when you recognize that, it ought to change the way that you live. Mm -hmm. And the resistance comes from those of us who think we know how we ought mm -hmm. to live because yeah. the world has given us a way to live, and we have been pretty successful in it, right? Like in some ways this gospel is saying the hardest time is for those who are successful in the world as it exists. And so this guy who is blind, you know, physically blind at the beginning of the story is the one who has the most spiritual insight. He's the one who is most open to being transformed. And he gives his testimony and people like me who think we've got it all figured out, don't listen to him. So I think there's something really rich in this text about those of us who, who think we see the way the world works, like we understand how, it, how we're supposed to be. We're the ones that are at risk of sort of alienating ourselves from God. And that if we truly encounter Jesus, then it would make us pay attention to people who give testimony about how their lives have been transformed, who, who don't have all this sort of background that prevents them from, from understanding what's really going on in the world. I read this text as a really clear call to, to pay more attention Yes. That Jesus is, is diagnosing the sin of the world and, and, and we need to pay attention lest we continue to participate in it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love so much about what you said. And one thing that really jumped out to me is, is the power for me of the metaphor of sight Yeah. for the, the problem and also the yeah. solution. But that, I mean, that the, the sense of sight in particular, at least in you know, a lot of modern Western culture, the world I live in, 
we rely so much on sight and it lets us go fast. Like we yeah. fill in a lot mm. of information because we can just quickly scan a room and, you know, feel like we know what's going on and, and, and miss so much. And it has yeah. me thinking back to the beginning of this reading today where it said sort of, you know, God's going to work something out in this person who is blind. And we said, do you mean heal them? And like, maybe, yeah. but maybe also there's something, something they, something easier to access when you don't have the distractions of yeah. metaphorical sight, at least. Yeah. This is maybe kind of a silly thing, but, but I'll tell you anyway. So I wake up before anyone else in my family and we have, you know, kids and dogs. And so I'm trying not to wake other people up. <laughs> yeah. And so it has been my practice for many years not to turn on any lights. And so, you know, I know how many stairs there are going down. So I like count the stairs and I always spend a moment like thinking before I went to bed, did I notice there was like furniture that had been moved so I don't trip on something in the house. And I like can tell by smelling the room, like did the coffee go on? Did the puppy make a mess? Yeah. <laughs> Did, you know, like, what are, the, what are the things I need to be attuned to in this room? And I mean, to be honest, I probably don't really need to do it anymore. I couldn't wake my teenagers with a fire alarm at this point. <laughs> yeah. But I've come to really like that, like, slow discovery of what's happening in the house when your sight is yeah. cut off. You know, and I just, I feel like it gives me a much, I don't know, appreciation for a lot more of the things that are going on. And I think that metaphor in the, in this section of text and in the wider world is really, a really a good one, really a powerful one. I love that, Amy. And that, you know, the, the thing that you said that really is sticking with me is sight lets us go quickly. And I think that's also true of the sort of metaphorical sight, like what we think we know enables us to move quickly. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it makes us overlook things that are outside of what we think we know. And so to slow down and, and really pay attention in different ways can, can make the, a world of difference. Well, this has been a great conversation and I think is leaving me with a lot to sift through over the course of the next week. Yeah, me too. The, the good news is our special episode that will come out shortly is on the very next verse, John 10, 1 to 18. Which is, as I was mentioning earlier, the discourse where Jesus explains what he's been trying to say this whole time. Mm-hmm. And so we, we get to linger with these kind of ideas mm-hmm. in, a, in a little bit of a different set of images next week. Yeah. And we can see, was, I, I kind of appreciate that this week we got to say, like, what do we think about this? Yeah. Or at least what do I think about this? Because you already probably know what Jesus is going to say about it. And then we'll see next week how it aligns or grows or changes with Jesus's reflection on it. Yeah. So we'll encourage all our listeners to listen to our Ash Wednesday special episode and that's where we'll be talking about the Good Shepherd. I'll see you there. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. 
special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest sponsors, Carlene Young, Cindy McDonald, Jean Paul Donaldson, and Michael Poulos. Join us again next time for a special Ash Wednesday study of John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, the story of the Good Shepherd. Until then, keep on digging.